0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Today's story The Victorio Peak Treasure Legend, Part 1. The San Andres Mountain Range in southwestern New Mexico is home to a lot of Old West stories and legends, but none so mysterious as the legend of Victorio's Gold. This story is quite incredible. It involves a number of characters, starting with a renegade Mescalero Apache chief named Victorio followed by a Catholic monk named Father LaRue, who, after being told of a fortune in gold by a dying soldier, escaped a Mexico City convent and headed north to start his own colony of gold-seeking believers. Then there's the story of a three-day battle between components of the 6th and 9th Cavalry and renegade Apaches at a high, rocky outcropping that the soldiers called Victorio's Peak in the rattlesnake-infested Umbrio Basin, now a part of White Sands Missile Range. And it contains the story of a $60 billion treasure in gold bullion rumored to be the largest undiscovered treasure in North America. Until, individuals working in the highest echelons of our government seized it to line their own pockets. That resulting, allegedly, in an immense U.S. government cover-up. A cover-up that involved two American presidents, dozens of Army, Air Force, and CIA officers, and at least two dozen murders, one of which was the murder of a 1930s prospector named Milton Doc Noss, who, along with his wife, discovered the treasure and held the only legal rights to the mine's location until the U.S. military performed a land grab and took those rights away, whereupon the government actively began pursuing the treasure themselves, going so far as to build a road that ends at the face of Victoria Peak with two large steel doors. Moving tons of gold ingots requires heavy vehicles. And although there are elements of older legend involved, the stories of the finding of the gold and the cover-up are true. What is not known is how many people got their hands on the gold, what the government did with their share because it was never documented, and how much gold still lies beneath Victoria Peak in New Mexico. The odds are, not much. White Sands Missile Range is a top-secret facility, and the CIA along with its military counterparts, has been given free range to do whatever they please within that area, and they've been doing it for 70 years. Kicking an old couple off their claim by expanding the White Sands government property to include Victoria Peak, after it became known there might be a treasure buried there, was easy work. How to steal the treasure, have it end up in privileged government persons' pockets, and keep people quiet, was not so easy. There have been many books and articles and lawsuits one of which involved well-known attorney F. Lee Bailey. Bart McClellan, New York Times best-selling author and attorney for Lyndon Baines Johnson's interest between 1966 and 1977, said of one of those books called The Gold House Trilogy, written by John Clarence and Tom Whittle, I was hooked, unable to close the covers of this unique treasure hunt, the homicides and the abuses of power. The trail of witnesses and paper and gold extractions seems never to end. In other words, the evidence is overwhelming. General Gerald Shoemaker, U.S. Army Special Forces, retired, wrote, It would be impossible to conjure up a more detailed, irrefutable, and shocking account of greed, corruption, deceit, and mortiferous behavior permeating the highest offices of our government. This is one of the most incredible stories I've ever researched, and how it avoided me for so long, I have no idea. But here it is. Buckle your seatbelts and secure that coffee mug, because it's going to be a wild ride. And our story begins right after this sponsor message. And now the story of Victorio's Treasure. Victorio Peak is a high, rocky outcropping in the Ambrio Basin in southern New Mexico. For renegade Apache Indians who needed a base camp that offered a 360-degree view of the basin and its approaches, and was fairly easy to defend with a few well-placed rifles, that peak made a near-perfect hideout. Very few humans could live off the land in this part of the country, where water was scarce and rattlesnakes and scorpions and extreme heat were plentiful, but the Apaches had mastered it. The U.S. Army named the peak after the leader of a renegade band formed from the Chiricahua and Mescalero Apaches. That leader's name was Victorio. From hideouts like this one, he was best known and feared for his raids into Sonora, Mexico, during which he and his band of Apaches would raid livestock and kill settlers, carrying off the women and leaving a bloody trail of bodies in their wake. The Apaches lived by the warrior's code. They had been fighting for centuries, fighting to survive in a treacherous land fighting Spanish conquistadors who came in the 16th century to plunder the land for gold and silver, using prospectors and miners under the command of Francisco Vazquez Coronado, who captured and tortured the local Indians for information which could lead to the gold that they knew the mountains held, and then they used them as digging slaves. That gold was smelted and turned into coins and ingots and sent by Spanish ships across the Gulf of Mexico, then around Florida and Cuba, and the ones that survived storms and pirates made it across the Atlantic to Spain, which was built, in its heyday, on gold and silver mined and taken from North America. Then came the wave of mining operations up from Sonora, Mexico, financed sometimes by the church and sometimes by wealthy Mexico-based Spanish families that had come to the New World to settle and prosper. Families that set mule trains up into the San Andres Mountains and elsewhere in the southwest to dig for... "'and bring treasure back in the form of gold and silver. "'When the Spaniards came, the Catholic missionaries followed, "'and their intentions were to establish colonies "'and Christianize and convert the local Indians, "'by force, if and when necessary. "'Farming was impossible in this barren terrain, "'so the Spaniards forced, and the Padres encouraged, "'and sometimes forced the Indians, as slaves, "'to mine the gold and silver in the mountains.' These missionaries came from a wide variety of backgrounds, many from Spain and some from other European countries, including France. The New World offered a chance for the Church to expand and grow and prosper. Mexico City became the launching point for missionaries who were sent to establish missions in the southwestern U.S., which was then considered Mexico. One of those French missionaries was named Father Felipe Leroux, originally the son of a wealthy French nobleman. LaRue had joined a French monastery in his home country, taking a vow of poverty and choosing to lead a life of self-denial, and doing so pretty much as his own defense against established authority. To Rue, becoming a monk was the best way he knew to rebel against his wealthy family status and the position in society of which he wanted no part. As a monk, LaRue's private rebellion wasn't working out too well, as he refused to follow doctrine and was constantly getting in hot water with them. So the powers that be decided to send him to Mexico City and give him menial duty in the fields, which angered him even more. He began to complain about their policies, and soon they responded by whipping him, locking him up, then sentencing him to hard labor, hoping that the rough treatment would straighten him out. But the more they punished him, the more he resisted them. And that's when fate stepped in for LaRue. One day, a soldier who had been serving in New Mexico arrived at the mission after a long journey. He had fallen ill during his journey, and Larue was given the assignment of nursing him back to health. But the soldier's health continued to fail, and he died. But before he gave up the ghost, he told Larue that he had found a large amount of gold in the area from which he had come. He told Larue that he wanted to return to Mexico City to raise money to mount an armed mining expedition, but he feared he would die before that could take place. Larue asked him where the gold was, and the man explained as best he could the landmarks, the number of days of travel it took, and where there existed a large vein of gold-filled quartz inside a mountain peak. Larue was convinced that a fortune awaited him, but he was going to need men, horses, and equipment. For two years he plotted and planned, and managed to convince a small cadre of fellow monks, as well as two dozen Indian converts, to flee Mexico City with him, and head for the San Andres Mountains in search of riches. There they would establish a colony in which the members could live and worship as they pleased, apart from the strict confines of the church. In the darkness of the night, Larue and his fellow believers stole several mules and a quantity of supplies, and fled from the monastery, leaving Mexico City behind. As they traveled northward through barren deserts and rugged mountains, they grew weak from the travel through the sun-scorched, arid land, finding very little wild game and even less water, until they reached the banks of the Rio Grande, where they replenished their supplies and sought information about the land toward which they were heading. A few more days of traveling brought them to the Hembria Springs in the wide basin that bordered the western slope of the San Andres Mountains, and here they found both water and game. This, to them, was paradise, a place where they could start a community and begin the hard work of searching for and mining gold." They quickly put some men to work building a cistern to capture rainwater, while others began hauling stones into place and mixing mortar to create stone buildings, including a crude chapel. Others planted corn and beans and dug primitive aqueducts to transport the water from the spring to their new gardens, as well as to the cistern, as they couldn't depend upon enough rain to sustain them. Within sight of their camp was a high peak that towered over a series of canyons that offered good opportunities for hunting and while one of their party was searching the area close to that peak, he came upon a thick outcrop of gold located inside a cave on the side of the mountain. When he reported this back to the camp, Larue was excited, thinking this was the place the soldier had described. They had made it, and this was a sure sign from heaven that they'd made the right decision in leaving Mexico City. With the gold, they'd be able to make crucifixes and chalices for their church. He assigned two monks to the duty of digging out the gold vein but there was much more than two men could mine. So soon there were two dozen men working around the clock, some with picks and shovels extracting gold from the shaft they were now digging, and others smelting the gold, heating the gold in kilns and then separating out the impurities using a mineral acid, probably nitre, combined with water. Nearly pure gold was the result, poured into molds that would produce huge gold bricks when cooled. As the men labored, gold bars began to accumulate, and soon hundreds of them were stacked along the walls of a cave which was located far below that mine shaft. Somehow, maybe it was a deserter, no one knows, the word of their new settlement got back to Mexico City. Three years had passed, and LaRue had amassed a fortune in gold bars. The church officials in Mexico City sent out an armed force to seize control of his mining operation, to begin shipping the gold back by mule train to the church in Mexico City, and capture LaRue and return him for punishment which he so richly, according to the church, deserved. But LaRue was tipped off that the soldiers were coming for him, and he ordered the entrance to the mine closed and instructed his faithful followers to stay silent about its whereabouts. When the soldiers and church officials arrived, LaRue was taken prisoner and interrogated ruthlessly. They tied him to a post and whipped him until his skin hung from his body in bloody shreds, but he wouldn't give up the location of the mine. They whipped him beyond the point of recovery "'and he died within twenty-four hours. "'His men were also tortured one by one, "'and each man died without giving up the location of the mine. "'Totally frustrated, the church officials and their small army "'herded up the remaining members of the colony, "'chained them together, and dragged them back "'over a few hundred miles of southwestern desert to Mexico City, "'abandoning the community that Father Leroux had built, "'leaving the bones of him and his faithful band of followers "'to dry in the sun.' That all took place around 1670. For the next 200 years, the Umbrio Basin in that lonely mountain peak, along with the crumbled walls of the mission and the kiln and some outbuildings, saw very little human activity, with the exception of Indians who passed through the area to water their horses and hunt for game. In 1870, a Muscalero Apache chief named Victorio rode through and was impressed by the way the peak and the canyons below offered a protected shelter as well as a high point from which a watcher could scan the basin for approaching riders. So he set up a base camp there for his band of warriors. From that location he and his band could raid settlements and prey upon immigrants, churches, mail coaches, and anything else that promised horses, livestock, guns, money, or women. After the raids, Victoria was well known for the depredations they committed upon prisoners. While using that camp, he had discovered a shaft that led to underground caverns inside the peak with a load of gold ingots, gold that could buy him enough rifles for a thousand men if he wanted. To this treasure he added his own plunder, bags of coins from stagecoaches they had robbed, jewelry stolen from victims of their raids, and bodies. If you should visit the White Sands Missile Range Museum website, which oversees this part of New Mexico now, and tells their version of history, You'll get the elaborate story of how Victorio and the tribes he led were just innocent, multicultural victims of broken government promises. What you won't hear is how many innocents he and his band kidnapped, tortured, and killed, and what methods they used. Nuff said. Victorio was known to have left his kidnapped victims' bodies in a cave on the side of the mountain peak there, along with whatever booty they needed for trade when they needed to buy guns or ammunition or whiskey from white and Mexican traders who had no problem selling to renegade Apaches. The U.S. Cavalry had tracked Victorio to that mountain peak and its recesses in 1880, and on their maps it was called Victorio's Peak. The museum is well designed, showing topographical maps and providing overlooks so you can picture the battle that took place when portions of the 6th and 9th Cavalry were ambushed by Victorio's Apaches in the canyons and recesses that laid in the shadow of that peak. The Ninth, by the way, were the famous Buffalo Soldiers. The museum website reads like this. The Umbrio Basin became the scene of the largest Apache cavalry battle of the Victoria War. On the evening of April 6, 1880, two companies of Buffalo Soldiers, Afro-American troopers of the 9th Cavalry, approached Victoria's camp and were ambushed by approximately 150 Apache warriors. Taking advantage of the limited cover on the ridge below where you now stand, the troopers held off the Apache throughout the long, dark night. By morning, Captain Henry Carroll and seven troopers were wounded, two mortally, and twenty-five horses and pack-mules were down. As the sun rose on April 7th, Apaches had moved within close range of the troopers. Just as the Apaches prepared to attack, reinforcements arrived from the north and the west. The Apache abandoned their positions and retreated to the long ridge to the south, Victoria Ridge from which they fought a rear-guard action as their women and children escaped by climbing out of the basin, led by the Apache Nana, to the south. The reinforcing troops included two additional companies of Buffalo soldiers, three companies of Apache scouts, and one company of 6th Cavalry from Arizona. Aligning themselves along this ridge, the troops launched a frontal assault on Victoria Ridge, while 2nd Lieutenants Charles Gatewood and Stephen Mills led the Apache scouts in a flank attack. On the Apache camp, located behind Victoria Ridge and west of Victoria Peak. If you remember our story on Tom Horn, Tom Horn served as a civilian scout for Lt. Charles Gatewood during that war. The strategy was successful as the Apache on Victoria Ridge retreated upon hearing the shots from the direction of the Apache camp, fighting a rearguard action from each of the ridge tops that rise out of the Umbrio Basin. The Apache disengaged, leaving three dead on the field. The exhausted troops fell back to the spring-fed arroyos, digging holes in the stream bed for water. Camping in the Umbrio Basin overnight, the troopers marched east toward the White Sands on the evening of April eighth. Victorio and the Warm Springs Apache people fled west to the Black Range, while their Mescalero allies turned to the Mescalero. The battle at Umbrio forced Victorio out of his stronghold and into a running fight that culminated in his eventual death and defeat by Mexican troops. The U.S. Cavalry literally chased him to the border, beyond which they were not allowed to cross. But the Mexican troops found Victorio soon after they crossed. No other engagement during the Victorio War brought as many troops into direct conflict with Victorio. Howard Brinna, longtime journalist for the Albuquerque Times, theorized that Victorio and his Apaches had stashed a large amount of stolen booty in a cave on that peak. Now we flash forward to November of 1937, when a group of five men and one woman decided to camp in the shadow of Victorio's Peak while on a hunting trip. While the woman remained in camp, the men decided to spread out and hunt for signs of deer. One of those men, William Ernest Doc Noss, chose to climb the peak to the summit so he could get a good look at the surrounding country. As a slight rain began to fall, Noss was looking for shelter and spotted an overhanging rock, and as he approached it, he saw an opening in the ground that looked as if it was man-made. It was a narrow fissure that appeared to extend straight down into the mountain. He peered into it, and saw that it had been dug wider with a chisel, and then he saw a wooden pole with notches carved into it, a sort of primitive ladder. When the rain stopped, he returned to camp and quietly shared the news of his discovery with his wife, Ova, who was the lone woman on the hunting trip. He told her that as soon as they got home, he was going to return with some climbing gear and explore that hole, and they both did return just a few days after the hunting trip to do some searching. Initially, he tried to descend into the hole using the old ladder, but quickly determined that it was too dangerous to try without a rope. They rigged up a rope and lowered Noss down into the hole, armed with a flashlight and a twenty two for snakes. What Nos was to discover inside Victoria Peak that day has become one of the most incredible stories of the American West. Nos lowered himself sixty feet down into the shaft until he hit bottom, an opening the size of a large room. On the walls of the room, his flashlight revealed Indian drawings painted and scratched onto the rock walls. From that room led a passageway which sloped downward another hundred and twenty-five feet, and at that point it leveled off. There he found himself standing in a wide rift which he described as being big enough to hold a freight train, and as he walked it, he saw smaller rooms off to the side. He measured the large room at about 2,700 feet long, or nine football fields. There was a lot of evidence that the room had been used by a large number of humans for many years. At one point, his flashlight fell upon a human skeleton, its wrists still tied behind its back. No doubt a prisoner of the Apaches, he thought, who must have occupied these rooms inside the mountain. Before he left this room, he would count 26 additional skeletons all bound and most of them secured to wooden stakes which had been driven into the ground. Noss moved to another smaller room and found there a Wells Fargo chest along with several guns, swords, saddles, jewels and a huge stack of leather pouches filled with gold coins. In the same room he found a box of letters, most of them dated 1850. Noss filled his pockets with gold coins taken from one of the pouches as well as some of the jewelry and returned to the large room. He shined his light along a wall in the far corner, and was amazed to see stacks of metal bars piled high up along the wall. Thousands of bars, stacked like firewood. Once outside the mine shaft, Nas stared what he had seen and found with Ova. Almost as an afterthought, he mentioned the long rows of what he described as metal bars, and she asked why he hadn't brought one of the bars up. So he explained that each one weighed about forty pounds, and he was already loaded down with coins. The passageways were narrow, and climbing was difficult. Nevertheless, he turned back into the shaft, and one hour later, brought up one metal bar for Ova. Together they examined the heavy bar, and Ova noticed that if he held it up to the sun just right, it had a kind of a gold gleam. They gave it the scratch test with a pocket knife, and sure enough, what they saw was gold. This was the Depression and times for most people were hard. They had found a treasure worthy of a king even without the bars, which they now knew were gold. With all this wealth beneath their feet, they knew their lives were about to change, but they had no idea of how. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Letha Guthrie, Ova's eldest daughter, described the next few years as being a very happy time for the Noss family in an article published by Freedom magazine titled The Mystery of the $30 Billion Treasure and written by Thomas J. Whittle in 1986. For the most part, they confined their work to the immediate family, she said, and a couple handfuls of trusted associates. Their father, Doc Ness, believed that the government would one day take it from them if it became known that they had discovered treasure on Victoria Peak, and he demanded secrecy from all of them. Doc's wife, Ova, whom Doc nicknamed Babe, her two sons, Harold and Marvin, and her two daughters, Letha and Dorothy, helped Doc in the strenuous task of removing some of the bars. It's important to realize that the smallest bars weighed 40 pounds each. You would have to carry the 40-pound bar upwards 186 feet, bending over at the waist and climbing through narrow passageways. There was no quick or easy way to move them to the surface. Six men who worked with Noss in removing the gold bars later signed sworn affidavits regarding their experiences. They had only taken about 350 bars from the thousands that were estimated to be in that large cavern. One of those men, B.D. Lamprose, described having his photograph taken with Colonel Willard E. Holt of Lordsburg, New Mexico. Each held an end of the bar while it was being sawed in half. Joe Andreg, an electrician from Santa Fe, New Mexico, "'reflected on the days when he worked with Doc Noss in the late thirties. "'I was just a kid,' he said, about thirteen or fourteen years old. "'When asked about the bars, he said, "'I sawed one in two with a hacksaw. "'Another worker, Joseph Serafin, said the bars were stacked like cordwood. "'Another one of the workers, Bobby Samaniego, "'stated in a 1963 interview that he had entered the mountain with Noss "'and seen stacks of gold bars, skeletons, armor.' old guns, and statues. Sam and confirmed that all of the skeletons had been tied to posts as if they'd been left in the cave to die. Another time, Nos hired a boy named Benny Cedillo, who described seeing the stacks of gold bars and how difficult it was to carry even one back up to the surface to the narrow shaft. One of Nos' discoveries in the cavern, he said, included the shriveled corpses of Colonel Albert J. Fountain and his son Henry whose disappearance in 1896 had baffled crime solvers up until that time. Fountain was well known in New Mexico, first as the leader of a militia that protected settlers from Indian attacks, and later as a special prosecutor trying to bring law and order to the New Mexico territory. He and his nine-year-old son were attacked and presumably killed while taking a wagon to stay overnight at a friend's residence. Bloodstains were found, but their bodies were never found. The famous lawman Pat Garrett who had hunted down and killed Billy the Kid, was brought out of retirement to try and solve the case, but he never could. After two years of removing a small portion of the treasure from the cavern, using only people who could absolutely trust, and making infrequent trips that did not attract undue attention, Nos was getting frustrated. If the width of the shaft could be widened, it would allow them to remove the treasure much more quickly. In 1931, he set off a dynamite charge in an attempt to widen it, but the opposite took place, and the shaft collapsed in a cave in, plugging the entrance and stopping any future attempts to get at the treasure. Nas tried and tried, but couldn't get through to it. Neither he nor his wife would ever see the treasure again. He then started selling off the portion of gold he had found, something he could not do before because he didn't want to attract undue attention to himself and his find. And the Gold Reserve Act of 1934 had put the kibosh on owning or selling gold. And how many of you listeners know about that? Here it was in the middle of the Great Depression, and suddenly you were being ordered by the American government to give up any gold you owned. Section two of the Gold Reserve Act transferred ownership of all monetary gold in the United States to the U.S. Treasury. Monetary gold included all coins and bullion held by individuals and institutions, including the Federal Reserve. In return, individuals and institutions received currency at a rate of $35 per ounce of gold. Back then, our U.S. dollar was tied at the hip to our supply of gold bullion. This rate reduced the gold value of the dollar to 59% of the value set by the Gold Act of 1900, which equaled $20.67 per ounce. That rate had prevailed until the spring of thirty-three, when the Roosevelt administration began its campaign to devalue the dollar. The plan was very controversial, and it didn't help to pull the U.S. out of the Depression. Many people thought at the time that it was a huge government grab and was in direct violation of our rights. And why would we want to devalue the dollar in the depths of a Depression? We chanced suffering the same fate as Germany. Many people turned in their treasured gold coins for paper money, which continued to buy less and less throughout the 30s, and some held on to their gold, hoping for better days. In the spring of 1938, Doc Noss and Ova went to Santa Fe to establish legal ownership of the find, filing a lease with the state of New Mexico for the entire section of land surrounding Victoria Peak. Subsequently, he also filed several mining claims on and around Victoria Peak, as well as a treasure trove claim. There was no White Sands Missile Range at that time, That would come under Truman's presidency amidst fears that the Soviet Union was using German scientists to perfect a nuclear device as well as to create a new breed of aircraft, and the U.S. needed a top-secret and remote testing range for its military. Meanwhile, Doc Noss had entered a partnership with a man named Joseph Andraig, and together the two were able to sell off a great deal of their treasure to buyers in Arizona on the black market. The money they received, according to Noss, was to be used for future mining operations to gain access to the treasure cavern. They then tried and tried to open that shaft, but each attempt resulted in failure. Noss was growing bitter and fighting constantly with his wife, Ova, and they ended up getting a divorce. In 1949, Noss entered into another partnership with an engineer from Alice, Texas, named Charles Ryan. Noss showed Ryan the 51 gold ingots still in his possession as well as several artifacts and jewels he had taken from the cavern, and Ryan was convinced. Ryan made a deal with Noss for a piece of the treasure, and then supplied Nos with the cash. It was at this point that Noss discovered that his ex-wife had filed a claim on the mine, and they went to court. The court decided that until a legal claimant could be determined, no one would be allowed in the area. Now with all the delays and legal complications, Noss and Ryan found themselves arguing, and Ryan at one point said he wanted to withdraw from the deal and demanded that Noss return his investment. The request angered Noss, and he threatened Ryan. The two men exchanged blows, and at one point, Ryan drew a gun and shot Ness in the head, killing him. Ryan was charged with murder, but was later acquitted. On the night before his death, Doc Noss, perhaps sensing that his life on Earth was drawing to an abrupt close, or maybe, just sensing that his business deal was about to end, enlisted the aid of a cowboy named Tony Jolly to shuffle the locations of various stashes of the gold bars so that Ryan couldn't get access to them. There were 110 gold bars moved that night, according to a signed affidavit obtained by Freedom Magazine. The affidavit states, in part, In March of 1949 I moved 110 poured bars of gold in an area which is now White Sands Missile Range, which is now the area of Victoria Peak. On the night of March 4th, 1949, I went with Doc Noss and dug up 20 bars of gold at a windmill in the desert east of Hatch, New Mexico, and reburied them in the basin where Victoria Peak stands. Then we took 90 bars, stacked by a mine shaft at Victoria Peak, and reburied them 10 in a pile, scattered throughout the basin with the exception of 30 bars that we buried on a grassy flat near the road we came out on. As more years passed, Ova held to her claim. Every now and then she would hire men to try and clear the debris from the opening to the shaft, but none of their efforts worked. Then in 1955, the U.S. federal government's White Sands Missile Range extended its boundaries to include Umbrio Basin and, yes, Victorio's Peak. And that's when some real government subterfuge began. When Ova's hired men were discovered digging on Victorio's Peak, They were found out and quickly escorted off what they were told was not private land. And the fact that she held a claim mattered nothing to them. Ovanas was understandably angry. She began an exchange of letters with military officials demanding that she had a right to work the claim. But they continued to deny her access to the area, stating that there were security reasons. As time passed, she tried to pick up any mention of what was going on inside White Sands Missile Range beyond all the mystery that surrounded Area 51 and all the testing of top-secret aircraft. And she was able to find out that military personnel were trying to gain access to the treasure chamber inside the mountain. In 1961, after hearing that, she hired four men to travel to Umbrio Basin to attempt to clear the shaft and try to determine the extent of the military's efforts to find her mine. On October 28, 1961, the men arrived at her claim only to discover a group of four U.S. Air Force officers and four U.S. Army enlisted men digging in the opening. The officers ordered the trespassers away, explaining that they were on government property illegally. She was rightfully enraged that the U.S. government would use its power to not only take away her rights to her claim, but to try to take the treasure for themselves. Greed and power are a deadly combination, and the men who control the upper echelons of power in the U.S. government have proved over and over that the government has not always been run by the people and for the people, but by a few and for a few, with little fear of having to pay for their crimes. When her four men reported back to OVA, she hired attorneys who then contacted government officials, who got busy then stonewalling those inquiries and denying any kind of justice to OVA. Inquiries were then made to Colonel Morton Jaffe, the judge advocate at White Sands Missile Range who denied that any excavations were taking place at the site, basically telling her to pound sand. And the search by privileged members of the military and the CIA who had heard of the treasure that existed on their top-secret base was just beginning. And that search, as well as the involvement of two U.S. presidents and the subsequent cover-up, is the subject of Part 2 next Sunday night. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. Some updates for you. We recently launched 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, and by the time you're catching this episode, it should be out there on Apple and others. We'll list links to that show for you here in our show notes. Please do share our show with others and send us a kind review. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. Tomorrow we'll be speaking with the author of the new book, The 40 Thieves on Saipan, the story of a special commando unit whose job it was to work behind Japanese lines during the bloody 17-day battle for Saipan, which the Japanese considered to be homeland, and a veteran son's amazement to find that his father had led this group of decorated World War II heroes and never talked about it. That will be appearing as an episode here in about three weeks. Meanwhile, we hope everyone stays healthy and safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with the rest of the story. See you then.